God is over all this morning. Y'all encouraged by that message? I know I was. Thank you guys for that. Well, my, my name is uh, Nathan Parikh. In case you don't know, I get to serve as the young adult and communications pastor here at Hallmark. And it's always a privilege for me to be able to join you guys and open God's word with you. So today we'll be starting in the book of Exodus, chapter 19. Exodus chapter 19. If you don't have a Bible, that's okay. We're going to have all the text available for you on the screens this morning. But this is our eighth week in the Exodus series, week number eight. And we've seen that God has rescued Israel out of Egypt, and they are now entering the wilderness for the very first time as a free nation. For the very first time in 430 years, Israel is a free country. And they are now two months in to their journey, and God is taking them through the wilderness, and he has them parked in a very special location. Last week, uh, Pastor John preached on the tabernacle, on the dwelling place of God. And it was here at this exact same spot in the wilderness where God had given to Moses every detailed plan and instruction as to how the tabernacle was to look and what its function was supposed to be. But it was also in this same spot that God is going to give Israel something else. Because last week we saw that God wanted to tabernacle. He wanted to dwell with his people. This week in Exodus 19 and 20, we'll see that God wanted his people to be a certain type of people that he wanted to dwell with. So as we look at Exodus 19 and 20 this morning, the place that God has the people of Israel parked is Mount Sinai. So to kind of get a better sense of the setting of what we'll be reading this morning, let's look at Exodus chapter 19, starting in verse 16. The Bible says, On the morning of the third day there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast, so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain. And the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. It's a pretty incredible scene. Several weeks ago, though, we were actually already introduced to Mount Sinai. Moses has been here before. Just a few months before this chapter, God spoke to Moses from a burning bush. That burning bush was located at Mount Sinai. Except now in, in Exodus 19 and 20, instead of a burning bush, the whole mountain is on fire. As God descends in thick clouds and lightning and the whole mountain is shaking, God is putting on a show for his people. He's never done anything like this up until this point in history. Also, God has always spoken to the people of Israel through Moses. He would give Moses a message, and Moses would then relay that message to the people. But as we enter Exodus chapter 20, God actually sends Moses back down the mountain, and God is going to address the entire nation himself as they listen to him speak from the mountain with a loud, booming voice from the darkness. And it's here at Mount Sinai that God does not just have designs for a tabernacle, but he also has demands for his people. Who here likes being told what to do? 
You just love it when someone comes to you with a list of demands. I have a few hands up. Let me reverse that. Who here likes being the person who gets to give demands? You like to be the person in charge, right? You like to have your preferences met. Students, I'm sure you love those two times of the year, uh, your birthday and Christmas, when you get to have a a list of demands for your parents and your grandparents. This is what I want, and this is what I better get, right? Uh, With adults, we usually like being the ones in charge. We like having our preferences and our needs met. But as we enter this story, as Americans, as, as Texans no less in 2019, the idea of someone demanding anything of us can seem kind of offensive, even if that person is God. Right? Someone can make a suggestion. That's fine. Someone can, uh, here's a life tip for you that maybe you should try sometime. Okay. But to make a demand of us strikes at the very heart of our human rebellion. But in Exodus 19 and 20, there's no negotiation between God and his people. We are not about to read God's ethical suggestions. These are going to be his law. These are going to be God's commands. This morning, though, I want us to see that God's demands, his law, is a gift because it shows us who God is, who we are, and our need for Jesus. God's law is a gift because it shows us who God is, it shows us who we are, and it shows us our need for Jesus. So as we turn to Exodus 20, we come to one of the most famous passages in the Bible, the Ten Commandments. Did you know they're actually never called the Ten Commandments in the Bible? So they're actually called Ten Words. Now, don't throw out all of your coffee cups and your bookmarks. There's nothing wrong or inaccurate about calling them the Ten Commandments because they are commands from God that he wants us to follow. Uh, But just know that's a title that we have given to them. However, a title that the Bible does give the Ten Commandments is law. And so for sake of clarity this morning, when I use the term law, I'm referring to the Ten Commandments because as God's moral law, they are the foundation— for all other Old Testament law. And so, as we see, first of all this morning, that law, God's law, reflects God's heart. God's law reflects God's heart. Now, I want you to think of the law like a mirror. In order for a mirror to work, you have to have light. Because a mirror reflects light in order to show you an image. If you stand in front of a mirror in the dark for some reason, you won't see a picture because you have to have light in order for that mirror to work. Well, we have to understand that God's law functions in a similar way. His law reflects his heart. It reflects his character, who he is. Because these commandments are not just a random list that God thought would be fun to impose on other people. These commandments are a reflection of the God that we serve. They are a reflection of his heart. There's not time and a half hour to properly dive into the details and implications of each of these Ten Commandments. And so this morning is going to be more of a big picture overview of the law of the Ten Commandments. But I do want us to actually read all ten together this morning because this law is going to call each of us to respond. The law is going to have something for each of us to respond to this morning. Because the law reflects God's heart and we see in the first four commandments that God's heart demands worship. His heart demands worship. 
So the, uh, the first four commandments all have to do with our relationship with God and our worship of him. So let's read starting in Exodus chapter 20, verse 1, and we'll read the first four commandments together. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. First commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. Second commandment, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Third commandment, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Fourth commandment, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. The first four commandments all have to do with our relationship with God. Coming out of Egypt, which had many gods, going into Canaan, into the promised land, which had many gods, where idol worship was the norm for those countries, for those cultures, for those people. Here at Sinai, the one true God is putting his power on display and saying, this is who I am, and this is how I desire to be worshipped. Don't take your cues on how to worship me from the nations and the people and the cultures that will be surrounding you. This is how I am to be worshipped. Because like we learned last week with the tabernacle, we must not worship God as we choose, but instead we must worship God as he demands. And God's heart demands worship. Then in the final six commandments, we see that God's heart also demands justice. Let's start in verse 12 together with commandment number five. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Sixth commandment, you shall not murder. The seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery. The eighth commandment, you shall not steal. The ninth commandment, you shall not bear false witness or lie against your neighbor. The tenth commandment, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. God here is setting the standard for how he wants his people to live and interact with one another. God is showing us that he doesn't just care about what goes on in the worship house, in the tabernacle, in the temple, in the church. He cares about what goes on in my house and in your house and where we live every single day in our places of business and work. God cares about justice among his people. The law is an expression of the lawgiver's heart and the lawgiver's character. It reflects who he is. And I think these commandments show us that who he is is a good God. He is a good God that is on our side. He's giving us good commands. He's saying, hey, don't lie to each other. Don't take what is not yours. Be faithful to your spouse. Right? God is giving us these good commands to help human flourishing. And it's our choice whether or not we want to obey. That's why to have God's law 
is a gift. To have God's commandments is a special gift from God himself. And some people, when they read the Ten Commandments, are tempted to think, you know, that's great that God gave these Ten Commandments to these ancient people thousands of years ago, but this is America. It's 2019. What relevance does this have for us? And I think we as Americans would only be so lucky to only have Ten Commandments to deal with. Do you know how many laws there are in the United States? It's, a, it's kind of a trick question because no one knows. People have tried to count and they haven't been able to figure it out. To give you some perspective though, in 2010 alone, we added 40,000 new laws in this country. In one year, just our country, we added 40,000 brand new laws. In 2008, a House committee asked the Congressional Research Service to calculate the number of criminal offenses in federal law. So only federal law, only criminal offenses. How many of those are there? So they got a committee together, and they responded five years later in 2013 with the answer of they don't have the manpower or resources to figure it out. I have a feeling that during that five years, they were still getting paid, though. So they could have figured it out any sooner. I don't know. But have you ever thought about how much better life would be if everyone just kept these ten simple commandments? We wouldn't need to have a camera on our doorbell. We wouldn't need contracts. We wouldn't need courts. We wouldn't need prison systems. We wouldn't need defense systems. But the thing is, we do need all those things. Because here's the deal. No one can keep the law. No one is capable of keeping all of these commandments. Not even Israel. God's chosen people who saw him do all these miracles, who saw God on Mount Sinai, they could not keep this law. And there's actually an interesting pattern. Throughout the first nine books of the Hebrew Old Testament, it's the same books, they just have them in a little bit of a different order. But in each of the first nine books, it emphasizes at least one of the Ten Commandments and how they are broken. In the book of Genesis, Adam puts his wife Eve before God, breaking the first commandment. In Exodus, shortly after this reading this morning, while Moses is still on the mountain, while God is still thundering in darkness, the people of Israel construct a golden calf and begin to worship it, breaking the second commandment. In, Levit in the book of Leviticus, there's a man who commits blasphemy, violating the third commandment. In Numbers, there's an account of a man breaking the Sabbath, the fourth commandment. In Deuteronomy, it references a son rebelling against his parents, breaking the fifth commandment. In Joshua, things are in a little bit of a different order, but there's a man named Achan who commits theft, breaking the eighth commandment. Next in the Hebrew scriptures is Judges, where a, a man murders an innocent woman, breaking the sixth commandment. And first and second Kings is one book in the Hebrew Old Testament, and in there we have the story of David committing adultery with Bathsheba, breaking the seventh commandment. And then finally with first and second Kings, there again one book in the Hebrew Old Testament Bible. We have the story of Ahab and Jezebel who covet another man's field, and so they hire two people to be false witnesses in court, breaking the ninth and the tenth commandment. So we see even in the storyline of God's people, they could not keep God's law. God's chosen people who saw God do miraculous things, who witnessed all these amazing stories that we read about, they could not keep God's law, and neither can we. Because remember, we're thinking about the law like a mirror. A mirror reflects 
something. And God's law reflects his heart and his, and his character, but it also reveals what we look like. Right? When you look into a mirror, it reflects light to show you what you look like. When we look at God's law, it reflects his heart and character and reveals what we look like spiritually. And what it shows us is that our heart fails in worship. Our heart fails in worship. We worship anything and everything in, along with or in exclusion of God. We make our own idols, maybe not of wood or of stone, but we put people and things on pedestals where only God belongs. We take God's name in vain. We misuse and we abuse his name. And our heart fails in justice. We fail to honor our parents. We are a violent society that murders the unborn and the innocent. We take what is not ours. We want what is not ours. And we fail to tell the truth. No one can keep the law. And again, the law is like a mirror. And sometimes when we read through this list of ten, we're tempted to think, well, you know, I've broken a couple of them, but I haven't broken all of them. So I'm a pretty decent person. I've, I've kept some, and maybe haven't kept others. Number six, right? That's everyone's favorite one to go to. I haven't murdered anyone. I'm good. Check. But again, the law is like a glass mirror. If you break a glass mirror, you can't replace a part of the mirror. The whole thing is considered broken, right? If, if you drop your phone on the ground and the glass shatters, you can't just cut out a piece that's shattered, take that to Apple and say, hey, give me that little square, fix that part of my screen. No, the, and the entire glass has to be replaced because the whole thing is considered broken. And that's exactly what God says about God's law. Whether you've broken one of them or you've broken all ten of them, we are equally guilty of breaking God's law. The Bible says in James 2.10, For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. So if you are somehow the most amazing person alive right now and you've perfectly kept all nine commandments your entire life, but there was just that one time when he told that one lie, God says you are guilty of breaking the entire thing. You're guilty of breaking the whole law. And Romans 3.23 tells us that no one has kept the whole law. The Bible says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The law reveals my heart. It reveals my lack of love for God. It reveals my lack of love for others. When we look at this law, we realize that there's no way that we can ever possibly live up to it. The nation of Israel had been set free from Egypt. They were a free people for the first time in 430 years. And as God gives them this law, he's showing them, yes, you are now a politically free people, but you are not yet spiritually free. There is something else that has you captive. There is something else that has you in bondage. It's not an outside nation or an outside force. It is your own sinful heart. And that is the thing. That's the problem with all of us. And when we're confronted with that, our knee-jerk reaction is oftentimes to try harder. Let me try to obey all ten of these commandments better than I ever have before. Let me try to earn some favor with God to balance out the sinful things that I've done in the past, and maybe that will put me in his good graces. But the problem is, point number three, that the law cannot change your heart. 
the law cannot change your heart. Because we all know that you can be obeying on the outside, but rebelling in here. Whenever you're a kid and your parents ask you over and over again to clean your room or take out the trash, and finally you give in, and you're like, all right, I'm going to do it, but I'm not going to like it. And we make sure our parents know it, right? And so we have to be honest with ourselves and realize that we can be sitting in church, smiling, but our hearts can be somewhere totally different, worshiping another god. We can go through this life and never be charged with murder, but how many times have we wished pain and suffering on somebody else in our hearts? The law was never meant to change our heart because it can't. The law can do nothing to fix us. Again, thinking of the law like a mirror. I don't walk up to a mirror, see that my hair is messed up, and then try to comb my hair on the mirror. That would be ridiculous, right? You look probably even funnier than I just did right now. We don't do that. But that's exactly what we do sometimes with God. We say, all right, I know that I've broken these commandments. I know that I've messed up, so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to try to obey them as hard as I can, and maybe then God will love me. Maybe then God will accept me. Maybe then God will save me. But in Scripture, in both the Old and the New Testament, the law always comes after grace. The law comes after the gospel, after the good news of deliverance. The Bible says in Romans 3.20, For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. By works of the law, no one will be justified in the sight of God. Can you imagine if God had come to the people of Israel, they're enslaved for hundreds of years, and God shows up and he's like, okay guys, I see that you're enslaved, I've heard your cries, so here's what we're going to do. I've got these ten commandments. They're awesome. You're going to love them, wrote them myself, I'm going to leave these here with you for a while. And if you can just read them over, figure them out, maybe try to, you know, fix your lives up a little bit, stop lying so much, stop cheating on your spouses, I'll come back in a few years. And if you've got them all down right, if you've pulled yourselves up by your spiritual bootstraps, then, then I will set you free from Egypt. Is that what God did? No. God hears their cries, God takes the initiative, God sets them free, and then he gives them law. God sets them free from slavery and then gives them rules on how to live. Because the law cannot save us. That's what all other religions that are not Christianity, they're not biblical Christianity, teach. They teach that if you do enough good deeds, if you have enough good karma, if you go to these holy locations, if you say enough Hail Marys, if you give enough money, then you will be accepted in God's sight. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Ten Commandments were not a ticket to earn God's favor to get out of Egypt. They were rules for a people who had already been set free. These Ten Commandments are not our ticket into heaven. These are simply the rules that God has given to a people who he has already saved, who he has already delivered. That's why grace is never in Scripture. Grace is never the reward for obedience. It is the reason for obedience. 
And there's a huge fundamental difference between those two statements. Grace is never the reward for our obedience. It is the reason. Jesus does not say, if you obey me, if you obey my commandments, then I will love you. No, in John 14, 15, he says, if you love me, then you will keep my commandments. Do you see the difference in motivation there? It's not fear. It's not obligation. It's not religious duty. The motivation there is love. All of our doing, all of our working, all of our obeying is only in a loving response to what God has already done on our behalf, to what God has already saved us from, to what God has already done in our hearts. And that brings us to God's ultimate goal, his end game with the law. His primary desire for the law is not that it be carved somewhere in stone, but point number four, that it be written on our heart. The law written on our heart. That's why when Jesus arrives, he transforms the law. See, the Jewish people were super focused on having the right religious feasts, going to the temple at the right times, the proper cleansing ceremonies. They were really focused on all these outward religious duties and practices. And Jesus comes along, and he sees this, and he's like, okay, that's great that you're doing that, but your hearts are far from me. You don't love me. So what's the point? It was those same religious people that crucified him. Their hearts were not in the right place. So Jesus comes along, and he tries to move us from external to internal, from our habits to our hearts, from our religious practices to our relationship status with him. That's always been God's focus. That's always been God's goal for his people. Love is simply keeping the commandments. Love will keep the commandments. And Jesus, the ultimate expression of love, fulfilled the law perfectly. He's the only man to have ever perfectly kept God's law. He never failed. He never sinned. And he transforms the law from outward conformity to an inward transformation. In Matthew chapter 5, in his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus goes through many of the commandments, and he moves from saying not, have you ever actually murdered somebody, but have you ever been angry with someone? Jesus says, if so, then you are guilty of breaking the law. He doesn't say, not have you ever physically cheated on your spouse, but have you ever wanted to? If so, you're guilty of breaking the law. A religious man comes to Jesus in Matthew 22 and then asks him, well then, what, what is the greatest commandment? If you just had to pick one, Jesus, what is the one greatest commandment? Let's look at his response in Matthew chapter 22. The Bible says in verse 36, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. I can obey without loving, but Jesus wants us to love so that we then obey. He is more interested in the status of our hearts than us putting check boxes next to religious duties and practices and traditions. And when we accept Christ's righteousness and God's grace, instead of trying to earn it on our own, something amazing happens. 
and God's demands become our heart's desires. God's demands become our desires. God's plan has always been to transform our hearts. American Christians in the last several decades have done a pretty decent job of standing up for the public display of the Ten Commandments in our courthouses and in our schools, and that's good. Um, But according to research, most of them couldn't even tell you what the Ten Commandments are. The Family Research Council said that 78% of Americans are in favor of public displays of the Ten Commandments. That's really good. But the thing is, only 14% could actually tell you what the Ten Commandments say. You know, it's great that we want to have the Ten Commandments emblazoned in public. That's good. But God's primary concern is that they be written on your heart, that you want them, that you love them, that you believe them. That's always been God's focus and his goal. There's this beautiful passage in the book of Jeremiah. In Jeremiah 31, we see that this has always been God's plan. In verse 31, the Bible says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, which we all have broken, though I was their husband, declares the Lord, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. Look at this. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. It's a beautiful passage. God wants to write his law, not so much on tablets of stone, but on the tablets of your heart until they cease to be an external boundary and they become an internal transformation. The law reflects God's heart and it reveals our heart. But the law cannot change your heart. And so God offers you his love and his grace to deliver you from sin to then write his law on your heart until his demands become your desires. God's law is a gift that shows us who God is, it shows us who we are, and it shows us our need for Jesus. This morning I said that the law would call each of us to respond. The law has something for each of us here this morning. If you're already a follower of Jesus, remember that God's grace is not something that you needed just at the moment of salvation— but it's something that you need every day in your Christian life. Oftentimes when we accept Christ as our Savior, we say, okay, God, thank you for that. Now I've got it from here. That's not what the Christian life is to be, not by our own strength, not by our own power, but by the grace of God. Or we can feel like, as God's child, that God is just never pleased with us. I have to keep trying to earn his favor, earn his love, But that is not how our Heavenly Father functions. He has promised that we, as followers of Jesus, have his blessing. That he is pleased with us. That the perfection of Jesus has been given to us as his children. And that God, his grace, is enough for us. 
And so if you've been struggling with that, if that is something that your heart identifies with, may I encourage you this morning to rest. To rest in the grace of God. You don't have to do anything to please God. God is pleased with you, not because of what you and I have done, but because of what Jesus has done. We even see this in the fourth commandment. What did God ask his people to do in the fourth commandment? Nothing. To not work. A pastor that I recently heard said, the fourth commandment is the most practical outworking of the gospel. I can do nothing, and yet God is pleased. That is what the gospel is. That is what the Christian life is. Not by my works of righteousness, but by God's mercy that he saves me and he sustains me through my Christian life. I want to remind you of Romans 8 verse 1, which says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If, if you are a follower of Jesus, that is you this morning, under no condemnation. So I want to challenge you to continue to rest in the finished work of Jesus and rest in the grace of God. And so this morning, if that's you, if you're like, God, I, I know I've been saved by your grace, but I've been living like it's all on me. You're like, God, I've been feeling like I have to earn your favor, I have to earn heavenly points with you, but I know now that Jesus has earned all of that for me. If that is you this morning, I'm going to ask that you take some time and just ask God to help you rest in his grace, to rest in the finished work of Jesus. And for those of you this morning who maybe for the first time realize that I haven't kept any of God's law, I'm guilty of breaking them all, and maybe you feel condemned by reading this law, I'm going to offer you hope from the Bible. Right? God does not want any of us to pay the price for our sins. God's grace is endless. His mercy is limitless. God says that we must come to him on his terms, but thankfully his terms are full of love and mercy and grace. And those are the same terms that he has for you this morning. Because sin always leads to death and destruction. Romans 3, or 6.23 says that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. God wants everyone to turn from their sin and to him in faith. If you and I could keep the law on, on our own, by our own strength, then why did Jesus die? Why did Jesus sacrifice himself if you and I could have just done it ourselves? See, Mount Sinai is a mountain that the Israelites could not conquer. It's a mountain that you and I could not climb. And so Jesus climbed a different mount, Mount Golgotha, and he hung on the cross for our sins to pay the price that we could never pay, to earn what we could never earn on our own, to save us from our own hearts, to save us from our own sinfulness. And the Bible promises in 1 John 1, 9 that if we confess our sins, that he is faithful and that he is just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Amen. So God today is offering you the ability, the opportunity to be saved from the futility of trying to be good enough, from the difficult relig relig religiosity of trying to earn God's favor on your own, of trying to earn your way into heaven, something that you and I can never do in our own power. And so if you're here today and that's you, you're like, Nathan, I realize that if I were to stand before God today, I would be guilty. 
I've broken not just a part of God's law, but I'm guilty of breaking all of his law. I've been trusting in myself and my own good works to save me. But I realize now that God in his love and mercy sent his son Jesus to take my place, to take the penalty for my sins, and I want to receive that free gift of salvation. If that's you, in a minute, I'm going to ask that you take a step of faith, that you take a step in the direction of grace. We're going to have some people down front here who would love to show you God's love, his mercy, and his forgiveness. You won't find anger or judgment or harsh words. You'll find people who are willing to share with you the love of Jesus. And so this morning, whether you are a believer who says, I need to learn how to rest in the grace of God, or you're here this morning and realize that you've been trusting in your own good works, in your own salvation, in your own way of salvation, and you realize that you need the grace of God this morning, I'm going to ask that after I pray, you take a step of grace, you take a step of faith, and meet us down front and talk with one of us. Or if you're still unsure, I would ask that you at least take the connect card that's in the pew in front of you, write your name, put some contact info in, and put that, a check mark by the box that says you want a relationship with Jesus. Let's respond today. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. We thank you for your law that it shows us who you are. It shows us the sinfulness of our hearts, and it drives us to the foot of the cross where we can experience the unlimited grace of God. We thank you for showing us that today from your word, Lord. And Father, I pray for the Christian that's in the audience today that, that struggles with feeling like they've earned your favor, that they've earned your grace, or they maybe accepted your grace at salvation, but they've been living like their whole lives depend on what they do. I pray, Lord, today that you would help them to rest in your grace. And Lord, if there's someone else here this morning that is not a follower of you yet, who is trusting in their own good works, in their own keeping of the law, or their own version of salvation to save them, I pray that today you would convict their hearts, that you would show them that you have a plan of salvation for them. That simply if they turn from their sins and turn to you in faith, that you will save them. We thank you, Lord, for your kindness. We thank you for your law. But more so, we thank you for Jesus and for your grace. I pray and ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If God is speaking to you this morning, please take some time to come forward and pray.